You know, there have been those down through the years who have said that we need to remove any vestige or semblance or influence of Christianity from America. You know what we'll have then? We'll have something like they had back in Germany in the 20th century. If you remove the vestige and semblance of Christianity, you have what you had with the genocide of communism. And I say all that on this holiday weekend here in our country to remind us that when we cease to be good as a country, we will cease to be great. When we lose our compassion, we're lost. We are done. We need our Christian conscience. We find here in this passage the compassion of Christ. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Mark once again. Chapter 1. We're in a series here in the Gospel of Mark, and there's 16 chapters in this book, and we're still in the first chapter. The good news is we will finish it today. We're going to be looking at about the last 11 verses or so, beginning in verse number 35. Mark 1, verse number 35 says, And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he, Jesus, went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, and cast out devils. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him, and saith unto him, I will be thou clean." And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. And he straightway charged him, and uh, forthwith sent him away, and saith unto him, See thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But he went out and began to publish it much, and to blaze abroad the matter, insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. As I looked at this passage here, there was something that stuck out, uh, I guess, more than other things, and it was the compassion of Christ. And that's what we're going to be talking today about, the compassion of Jesus. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we do thank you now for a compassionate Savior, one who loves us, died for us, and rose again to minister to us, comfort us, We can cast all our cares upon him, for he careth for us. Lord, as we talk about the compassion of your son today, help us now to learn this truth and to practice it. We pray now and ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I was driving west on I-94 yesterday, and I saw the new hospital there. Pretty amazing, isn't it? I don't know how many stories it is, but uh, I guess it's a million square feet. It's ten times all the square footage we have here on our campus. A million square feet. It's big business. The medical industry is big money. But you know, it wasn't always that way. 
Do you know that there were no hospitals until Christianity came along? Did you know that? Most people aren't aware of that. It was the compassion of Christianity that really started the medical industry, and it was different back in those days. You know, the mindset of Christianity is much different than the mindset of other world religions or other world philosophers. You know what Aristotle, that so-called great Greek philosopher in yesteryears about the ideal state or the ideal nation. He said, let a law be passed in that nation that would say that no deformed or mentally retarded child should be reared. That's what Aristotle said. That was the mindset of, of, of folks back in Greece. There was Avaro who's, who spoke of how aged slaves on farms ought to be just taken out someplace and left there to rot like a, a farm implement. And I'm quoting what they had to say. You know, there have been those down through the years who have said that we need to remove any vestige or semblance or influence of Christianity from America. We don't want any influence of Christianity upon this country. You know what we'll have then? We'll have something like they had back in Germany in the 20th century when they banished Christianity from that country. And the result of it was the poor and the sick were used to uh, conduct Medical experiments. You've read about some of that. The result of that was that the Jews were tortured in gas chambers, sent to their death. If you remove the vestige and semblance of Christianity, you have what you had with the genocide of communism. And I say all that on this holiday weekend here in our country to remind us that when we cease to be good as a country, we will cease to be great. When we lose our compassion, we're lost. We are done. We need our Christian conscience. But it's almost gone, isn't it? We got it from our founder, Jesus Christ. We find here in this passage the compassion of Christ. Now, compassion is like empathy, and empathy is more than sympathy. There are a lot of people who will say that sympathy is feeling sorry for somebody, and that's true. But our Savior had empathy. He went beyond sympathy. He actually felt what we felt. Empathy has been called vicarious emotion. Stop and think about that. We are feeling vicariously the emotions that some other person is feeling. And it's insight to their feelings. It's been called fellow feeling. Feeling what they feel. Understanding what they're going through. And the result in it is pity. The result in it is compassion. Now, I can't say, or you cannot say, that you understand what it felt like to be Jesus Christ. We can't say that we've ever suffered like He suffered. But I'll guarantee you, He knows what it feels like for us. Because He put on flesh as the Son of God. He was incarnate, and He came to this earth, and He lived amongst us. He felt what we felt. He hurt like we hurt. In fact, we read this in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You know what that's saying? It's saying we have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who knows what it feels like to be human. And the result was kindness for us and sympathy toward us and comfort for us and consolation for us. The last days, folks, are going to be marked by callousness. We live in the last days, I believe, and we've gotten used to the callousness. We live in a world of terrorism. 
awful things are going on, but we're getting used to them. The beheadings, we're getting used to that. The cruelty, we're getting used to that. Here stateside, we're putting men in cages with with their fists and, and letting them beat each other in the face until one's nearly dead. We have gotten used to that. We've gotten used to sin. We've gotten used to immorality. We've gotten casual with it. We've gotten casual with death. They have now in our country drive through funeral parlors. If you can imagine that, we don't want to waste our time getting out and going in. Let's just kind of drive by the big window and there's old Bob and we'll just say our goodbyes to him now. That's the day and age in which we're living in. We don't see it happening, but, but we live in a soundbite nation that is always in a hurry and I'm one of them. I don't like that, and so much of the reason we don't have the compassion we should have is because we're just always rushing. We have all these responsibilities, all this stuff to get done, and we don't catch things anymore. We don't observe things anymore, and yet we still have a a nation and a society where people are looking for compassion. They're desiring compassion. Many years ago, there was a Russian writer by the name of Tolstoy. Some of you have heard of Tolstoy. And one day he was walking through a street in Russia and a peasant came up to him begging for alms and, and Tolstoy reached in his pocket and he didn't have anything on him. And he said, please don't be angry with me. He said, I'm sorry, brother, but I just don't have anything to give you. Well, the man's face lit up and he said, that's all right. He said, you've given something to me greater than money. You've called me brother. There are people who are begging and dying to be cared for. And as we look at the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find a Savior who cared. Let's look at these 11 verses here and learn some things, four things in all. First of all, let's take a look at his customary manner. His customary manner. What was his custom? What was his way of life? What was his manner of living? Well, notice in verse number 35, it tells us, it says, and in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. Now you remember last time, you remember the masses surrounding the house of Simon Peter? You remember the multitude who were thronging him to be healed? I mean, it was a huge crowd, and, and they stayed there late into the night to get healed. It might have been midnight, it been, might have been one o'clock. We don't know what it was, but it was a late night for the Lord Jesus Christ. It had to be absolutely exhausting for him. And so he goes to bed, gets a few hours of sleep, But at a time when others would have slept in and gotten some refreshment, he doesn't. What does he do? Well, he does what his customary manner would always be to do. He would rise up a great while before day, while it was still dark out, and he would go and get alone with his heavenly Father in a secluded place. There he would pray. And that was the secret of his power, wasn't it? Oh, he was a powerful, powerful man. But the secret of his power wasn't the fact that he was the Son of God. The secret of his power was his prayer life. Uh, so unlike Samson, we know his secret. It was his long hair. <laughs> With Jesus Christ, it was his prayer life. He's the Son of God, and yet he chose to live a Spirit-filled life. He had an advantage. He could have taken advantage of the advantage, but he chose to set all that aside, all the divine attributes, and live his life in the power of the Holy Spirit by having a, a private time of communion with his heavenly Father. Folks, that's critical. If it was critical for him, how much more for us? We find in verse 35, he departed into a solitary place. Notice that word solitary in verse number 35. In the, in the Greek, it means wilderness, a, a barren place, away from the hustle and the bustle of the city of Capernaum there. 
In fact, we find several times in the gospel that he would, he would go out into a solitary place. He would go out into the wilderness. You know, his entire ministry was really marked by prayer. Before he began his earthly ministry, he fasted for 40 days and he prayed out there in the wilderness. Before his baptism, he prayed. Before he chose the 12 disciples, what did he do? He prayed. He prayed all night. We read this in Luke 6, 12. It came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. He would not have thought of choosing the twelve without praying first. Before he fed the five thousand, what did he do? He prayed. Before he was transformed up on the Mount of the Transfiguration, before the, the inner circle, what did he do? We find him praying. Before he raises Lazarus from the dead, what did he do? He prayed. He prayed. He prayed in the upper room before uh, he had the Last Supper. He prayed in, in uh, Gethsemane before he went to the cross. He prayed and he prayed. Even on the cross, he prayed. Did you know that? Read Psalm 22 when you go home today. It's Jesus Christ praying on the cross. I mean, in his heart and in his mind, praying to the Heavenly Father. And then, of course, in John chapter 12, we find the Lord's Prayer. It's not the Our Father. That's a model prayer. He wasn't even praying when he said that. He was teaching the basics. It was an outline for prayer to his apostles. But there at the Last Supper in John chapter 17, it's the Magna Carta of prayer. That's where you find our Savior praying. Every miracle that he did was a result of his time in prayer. Let's never forget that. His ministry depended upon his prayer time. It was his customary manner to get up every morning and pray. But secondly, we see this. We see his compulsory message. His compulsory message. There was a message that he had to give out and, 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 and he was compelled to do it. Notice in verse number 36, It says, And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. So here's Peter. He wakes up to the noise of a crowd outside. It had probably stopped around midnight or one o'clock, but now it's probably six in the morning. And and all of a sudden, Peter wakes up, and all these people are outside making noise, waiting to get healed. It's Sunday morning. Peter wakes up and goes, where is he? The others woke up and said, where is he? And so they begin to hunt for him. And they all join in the hunt. We pick it up in verse 37. It says, and when they had found him, they said unto him, all men seek for thee. All men were looking for him. Everyone in Capernaum was looking for him. Why? Well, because he was healing them. He was able to heal them. That's why they were looking for him. They wanted to be healed. Later on, it would be for food. Not the right motive. Not the reason Jesus Christ came. Why did Jesus Christ come to this earth? Was it to heal people? No, that was a byproduct. That was just to give credibility to the message. The reason Jesus Christ came to this earth, we find out from his own lips in Luke 19.10, he said, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came to this earth. The Son of Man said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. It was not to heal people, although he did that. It was not to give out free meals, 
although he did that. It was not for the social gospel, although you'd hear many preach that was the reason he came. The reason he came was to keep people out of hell. Folks, there is a hell to be saved from. And Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. The reason for the miracles was just to give credibility to the message. There was that message that was compulsory. And the goal in that message was to save people from their sin and to save people from eternal judgment. And so Jesus Christ does something strange. He's healed a bunch of people. A bunch of people are showing up to to see him, to get healed even more. But he leaves them. He goes out and he prays. And the apostles come out and say, they're looking for you back there in Capernaum. And Christ said, that's not why I came. I must go to more villages and preach to them the gospel. I must preach to the neighboring towns and the neighboring synagogues. Now, he could have capitalized on his newfound popularity. But he wasn't interested in that. In verse number 38... He said unto them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. Again, the miracles only validated the message. He says in verse number 38, Let's go to the next towns and preach there. For therefore came I forth. And that's exactly what he had done in Capernaum. Now he's going to go into the next town. After that, the next town and the next town. You know, Josephus, the historian, tells us there were around 250 villages in Galilee. He had a lot of work to do, didn't he? He said, I'm going to go to this one. I'm going to heal people. They'll listen to the message. I'll see them come to me as their Savior. You know, we read this years later in Acts 10. Verse 38, Peter says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. The miracles only validated the message. Jesus Christ went about doing good, casting out devils, healing people, so that he could preach to them the message of salvation. What is the message of salvation? Well, the Bible teaches, friend, that you can know for sure you're going to heaven when you die. Do you sit here today with that assurance, that knowledge? If you were to die today, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? You say, I don't think anyone can know, can they? Don't we have to wait till we die and Find out whether our good outweighs our bad? No, because you don't work your way to heaven anyway by your good. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. In fact, the Bible says you're saved by grace. What is grace? Well, in that same verse, it says it's the gift of God. That's what grace is. It's getting something you haven't earned. Jesus Christ paid for it on the cross. Now it's a gift. What do you do with a gift? You receive it. And yet in most churches, in most religion across this country, today, even at this hour, there's a gospel being preached. It's a work salvation gospel that says if you get baptized, if you join this church, if you take communion, if you do good stuff and you don't hurt people, uh, that when you die, hopefully your good will outweigh your bad and God will let you in. That's a false gospel. The Bible teaches, for by grace are you saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. All God requires of us is to realize we are a sinner, a serious sinner, needing a Savior, a supernatural Savior. And when we in repentance are willing to turn from sin and change your mind about our sin, and turn to this Savior and place all our trust in Him, we call upon Him and we are born again the Bible way. That is salvation.
We read this in Romans chapter 10 and in verse number 9. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You say, well, pastor, that's so simple. Yes, God made it simple so that people won't miss it, so that people won't stumble over it. It's man that has taken and complicated something so simple with this do list of theirs. And everybody has a different do list. Have you noticed that? you got to do whatever they say on their list. But God says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and shalt believe in thine heart, not head, but heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's the message Jesus Christ went about preaching. That was the compulsory message. Here's the problem with that message, though. We read this in Romans 10, 14. How, and how then shall they call on him, speaking of Christ, in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? That's why Christ said the miracles are fine, but they need a preacher. If they're going to get this message, I've got to preach it. And in this passage, we find him doing just that. You know, let's put it this way. We find in this passage proof, power, and priority. The proof, that's the miracles. Those were to prove he was who he said he was. The the power, that was the prayer. We've looked at that already. The priority, the priority is to preach to the lost. That's the priority. Let's you and I not lose sight of the priority. We find the triangle of Jesus Christ here. His proof, His power, and His priority. And as we follow His life through the book of Mark, we see it over and over and over again. In fact, after the customary manner, after the compulsory message, we find thirdly this compassionate ministry. This compassionate ministry. Now, the Gospels do not record every act of kindness that Jesus Christ did, every person He healed, every demon He cast out. In fact, we find this in John 21, 25. John ends his Gospel by saying, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. You say, is that an exaggeration? No. In fact, I had a clergyman who didn't believe the Bible one time tell me, do you literally believe that? And I said, well, yes, I literally believe that. Is Jesus Christ God the Son? Yep. Will you, will you ever exhaust the subject of God? Nope. So the world itself could not contain the books that should be written about the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't have everything he did here. It was a fast. It was a furious ministry. It was three and a half years. It was go, 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 go. In fact, we're going to find eventually that Christ could not even encounter one healing at a time. The people were thronging thronging him. In Luke 6, 19, it says, And the whole multitude sought to touch him. For there went virtue out of him and healed them all. Picture this thing escalating and the crowds mobbing him. And pretty soon he couldn't deal with them one-on-one. He was just trying to get from point A to point B. And they were reaching out. And if we could just touch him, we'll be healed. And they were healed. And he didn't mind at all. What a Savior. What a Savior. Now, we see here this compassionate ministry as we pick it up in verse number 40. It says, And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, that word means begging him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Would Jesus Christ be able to even heal leprosy? Well, let's talk about the one who walked on water, okay? He could control nature. 
He could bring forth a fish with a golden coin. Uh, he, he, could, he could cast out devils, and all nature now would be subject to him, even the scientific and the physical one. And that's what sets him apart from Confucius and sets him apart from Muhammad and any other religious leader here. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the time he's done with his three-and-a-half-year ministry there in Israel, pretty much illness is going to be banished. And the demons are going to be banished here from Israel. It's, it's, it's unparalleled in history. There has never been anyone like this who has lived. And by the way, as a result, there is absolutely no excuse for not believing his message. Even to this day, there are those who poo-poo the message of Christ. What more could he have done? Like the Pharisees of old. I mean, they saw all this. And they still hardened their heart and calloused themselves. Now we're going to see a leper healed. Can he handle this? You know, no doubt there were a number of lepers that he healed if they were reaching out to touch him all the time. But did you know that in the Gospels, in the New Testament even, you only find two accounts where he healed leprosy. Now, there is a a third one, a a guy by the name of Simon the leper. He's going to be mentioned in chapter 14 when we get to him. And no doubt Christ probably healed him. But as far as the accounts of Christ healing leprosy, there's the one where he healed the ten lepers. You're familiar with that one. And then this one. And that's it. It's in all three Gospels. Why? Well, I think this one's a classic illustration of salvation. I think if we understand leprosy here, leprosy in the Bible is a picture of sin. It's a picture of sin. We are a picture of this leper, outcast and and alienated, and he meets the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happens at salvation. We meet Christ. We meet Christ, and we are cleansed in salvation, and then we go out and we broadcast what he's done for us, just like this guy did. We find here a very interesting uh, thing. I call it the leper's predicament and then the Lord's pronouncement. We pick it up again in verse 40. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Notice what he said. If you will, Lord, you can do this. He didn't say, if, if you could, you will. No, Christ could. And this leper had faith. He said, if you are willing to do this, I'll be clean. Now, Luke's account of the same situation tells us this guy is covered with leprosy. Covered with leprosy. It's pitiful. It's pathetic. Leprosy in the Greek is the word lepros, which means scales. I think you can get the picture. The skin becomes scale-like. It is a skin malady. Scales cover the body. But the person with leprosy is also grossly disfigured. It attacks the nervous system. In fact, it, it, it so attacks the nervous system that they don't even know uh, if they have hurt themselves. They've had accounts, I don't even want to get into it, where rats have gnawed off limbs of people with leprosy and they don't even know it. You stop feeling. The nervous system causes you to, to lose all feeling. They think it originated in Egypt because they have found it in some of the ancient mummies. But it was perhaps the most feared disease of that day, leprosy. There was no cure for it. The the skin lost color. The skin turned white. The blood stopped flowing to it. The bones deteriorated. The the face swelled up, and the eyebrows and the eyelashes and the hair fell out. And it it was horribly contagious. Just by touch, you could pick it up by physical touch, and there was no cure for it. And so God in Luke, uh, Leviticus 13 lays out the, the outline of, of leprosy and he said, if you see even the rash beginning, 
You've, you've read that back there. He, he said, do this and then do that and do the other thing. And, and they would quarantine it and see if it got any worse. And pretty soon, if it was obviously leprosy, that person was banished. We read this in Leviticus 13.45. And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent. That means torn as a sign. And his head bare. And he shall put a, a covering upon his upper lip so his breath doesn't even go anywhere. And he shall cry, unclean, unclean. He was banished to the wilderness. If he was even passing on the outskirts of a village, he would have to cover his mouth with his, his hand so his germs didn't go anywhere, and he would have to scream out, unclean, unclean. The Jewish Talmud tells us that he could not get any closer than six feet to anybody. And if there was a breeze that day, he had to even stay further. If there's a strong wind, he'd have to stay at least 100 feet away from anyone because the society just found him repulsive. The odor was repulsive, by the way, of a leper as he walked through. It was, it was dreaded. And he could not enter into a walled city, which means he could not go into Jerusalem, which means he could not go into the temple or the synagogue. Here's the man. He's without family. He's without friends. Every leper was without a job, without hope. And it was permanent. You see why it's a picture of sin. It's awful, horrible. And the leper was considered cursed by God and despised by men. And so this was absolutely shocking when this man dared to come close to Jesus Christ for healing. And I, I can just see him driven in his desperation, wanting to be helped so desperately, believing the Son of God could do it, but, but violating protocol by going close to the Savior here. He recognized him. He recognized the great physician, didn't he? We've talked about him already. And so he comes and he beseeches him. That means he begged him. He falls on his knees. There's the respect. There's the reverence. And he humbles himself in adoration, worshiping the Lord. With bold faith, he asks to be healed. He says, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Now, common theology at that time said that if you were struck with leprosy, it's because of sin. You are cursed by God. There's sin in your life. That's the problem here. And so here he comes running up to the Lord. He falls to his knees. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. I can see everybody just recoiling back in horror, covering their mouths, looking for stones to drive this pest away here. But not Jesus Christ. In verse 41, it says, And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him, and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. There we find the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there have been examples down through history of, of men with compassion. And, and we think of back during the days of war, like I mentioned a while back between 1940 and 1945, the, the names Hitler and Himmler and Goering just, just struck fear into the hearts of the world. Heinrich Himmler had a private physician by the name of Dr. Kirsten. And it has been noted that Dr. Kirsten was secretly protecting the Jews and may have saved up to about 60,000 of them during the war through his effort. We call that compassion. I think of Lincoln, known for his compassion. A story is told by Dr. Jerome Walker during the Civil War days. Walker was from Brooklyn, but he, he ran the City Point Union Hospital. And Lincoln was touring the hospital there, going around to the Union soldiers and, and talking to them and shaking hands with them and encouraging them. 
Dr. Walker brought them through ward after ward after ward, and finally they came to one other ward, and, and Walker turned to the tall president, and he said, you don't want to go in that one. And Lincoln said, well, why not? He said, well, there's only rebels in there. And Lincoln turned to him in a mild rebuke and said, you mean Confederates, right? And the doctor said, yep, Confederates. Lincoln said, show me in. He went to every one of those Confederate soldiers with the same kindness that he had the Union soldiers, talked with them, encouraged them, shook their hands. We call that compassion, compassion. Jesus Christ, however, wrote the book on compassion. And we read about it in verse 41. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him, and saith unto him, I will, be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, Immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. Oh, we see the compassionate ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't find that amongst the ancient Romans or Babylonians or Medo-Persians or Greeks. We don't find that really in any of the ancient philosophers or even the other religions worldwide today. You don't find compassion. Do you know that the Allah of Islam is a God that is aloof from his creation? He cannot be approached. He is stern. He wants really nothing to do with his creation. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not Jehovah God and that is not Jesus Christ. We find a Savior who has compassion. We see his customary manner, his compulsory message, his compassionate ministry. And finally, we see this captivating magnetism. The crowds get absolutely bonkers. His fame skyrockets here. In spite of the fact he's trying to avoid it. Notice in verse number 43. And he, Jesus, straightly charged him, the leper, and forthwith sent him away, and saith unto him, See thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. We find the leper completely healed. In fact, how do we know he was completely healed? Because Jesus tells him to go to the priest and offer for this cleansing the things that are required of him. You know where the priest was? He was in Jerusalem. This is Capernaum, way up here. Jerusalem's about 75 miles south. He tells this man to take a 75-mile hike. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was healed. And he said, go show yourself to the priest. Before this man could return to society, there was something the Bible taught he needed to do. And here's our Savior honoring the, the Old Testament. This man was to get a, a couple of birds, have one killed, do the blood thing with the, the dead bird, let the living bird go, spend seven days waiting during a time of, of, uh, of, of, of inspection by the priest, and then after that he would be anointed with oil and pronounced clean and let go in society. Now, Christ had told him, I want you to go to Jerusalem and do this. But I don't want you to tell anyone what happened. Tell no man what happened here. You say, why would Christ do that? Wasn't he trying to make a name for himself? No. There was enough Messiah mania already. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself. In verse 45, he said, don't say anything. But he, the leper, went out and began to publish it much and to blaze abroad the matter insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city but was without in desert places. And they came to him from every quarter. The frenzy escalated. And he couldn't get a moment alone. It spread like wildfire. And as I mentioned a moment ago, of these 250 villages in Galilee, the plan 
was for Christ to go into each village and be able to, to heal people and to preach the gospel. But now, that's going to be impossible. He's going to have to stay in rural settings, except for occasionally coming into town. We're going to see that in the next chapter. But, but why was Christ not interested in the crowds? Good question. Well, I think he was trying to primarily train the 12 disciples. He was trying to invest the, the, the bulk of his time into them. And three and a half years later, after he goes back up into heaven, they turned the world upside down. That was his plan. But I, I think Christ saw something else here. He saw the motive wrong in the crowds. Why were the crowds thronging him? Well, they wanted to be healed. Later on, they wanted food. Wrong motive. Folks, we need to be careful about the wrong motive when it comes to why people want to hear the gospel. You know, we get it every week around here. They call the church for some kind of a handout. You go over to Africa, and they will, they will take your literature because they know you're from America and you have money. The motive's not right. Why should somebody want to be saved, whether it's in the bus ministry or any other ministry? It's because they see they're a sinner, depraved, and in need of a Savior. And we need to remember that. And so here's Jesus Christ. He retreated, and the crowd still followed. And here's the leper blabbing it to everybody. And, and now the leper gets to go from the wilderness into the city, and Christ has to go from the city out into the wilderness. Isn't that funny how that works? They traded places. And what a picture of what Christ has done for us as well, by the way. We read this great verse back in Isaiah 53, 12. He bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He bare the sin of many. He took our, our sin upon Him. He traded places with us. What a picture of what Christ did on the cross. When we look at this leper here, He took our place. On March 5, 1981, He took my place. Whenever you got saved, He took your place. That's our compassionate Savior. Closing thought. What's our responsibility now? We know the Lord has compassion, but, but what about us? You know, we, we can pray. And there was a preacher I know of years ago, and he kept praying, Oh, Lord, have compassion upon this lost world. Oh, Lord, have compassion upon this lost world. And one day it was just as if the Lord rebuked him in his heart and said, I've already had compassion upon this lost world. What about you? And what about you? And what about me? And what about us? Jesus Christ is a friend for sinners. We sing that, don't we? What about us? He's a friend. You know, it was Seneca who said this, What a great blessing is a friend. With a heart so trusting, you may safely tell all your secrets in it, whose conscience you may fear less than your own, who can relieve your cares by their conversation, your doubts by their counsels, your sadness by their good humor, and whose very looks give you comfort. What a description of the Lord Jesus Christ, our compassionate Savior. May they see Jesus Christ in us, the way they saw compassion in Him back in the first century. Back in the early 1900s at a, at a train station in inner London there, there was a little deformed crippled boy. He was, he was trying to earn some money by selling his fruit and his nuts Every morning, the same thing. The train would come up and people would get off and he would try to make a little something to bring home to his, his widowed mother. Well, on a particular day, the train pulled up as it always did. There was a businessman looking back and before the train even stopped, he swung off and onto the platform and plowed into the boy and he knocked his fruit and nuts everywhere. And he turned around with a look of disgust and just kind of jogged off. 
There was another businessman who was next in line. He looked at the situation, and he saw what was about to happen with the people about to get out there. He saw scattered fruit. He saw a crippled boy. He saw distress all over the face of that boy and tears welling up in his eyes and how this stuff was going to be trampled underfoot in just a moment. So he got off, and as quickly as he could, he, he gathered all the stuff up together for the boy, and he put it in his basket, and then he took out a silver dollar, and, and he gave it to the boy, and... The boy looked it up, up at him with tears in his eyes and he said these words, Sir, be ye Jesus? Be ye Jesus? The man looked down and he said, No, I'm, I'm not, but I'm a follower of his and just trying to do what he would do if he were in my shoes today. Folks, what a way to live and that's the way we're supposed to live. Be ye Jesus? No, but we're followers of his, aren't we? And may God help us to live the way he lived and to emulate what he gave to us, and that is primarily His compassion, His compassion. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.